All right, so today's daf is daf nun alif, page 51, and the Heligat Mesechas Shubas, Good Nerv Shabbos, Ervish Chaydesh, Elo. Let us get going. Okay, says the Gemara, we are up to the two dots on the second line on nun alif, Amur alif, right? Two dots, Nusugia, except that uh, we're actually going to pick up. With uh, with a story, and remember, yesterday we wrapped up stating that you cannot demand. Bezdin is not going to demand somebody's property support their cho- support their uh, daughters how, uh, forcefully. However, that it, th- there's certainly a, a social pressure that we're going to place onto a person. There's certainly an expectation that the terror wants from us. Hahu yasaim v'yasaimam. There was an orphan, a boy orphan and a girl orphan. They came in front of Rava. Now, why are they coming to Rava? Why are they coming to the Paisik? Because their father apparently left behind some values and they wanted to make use of the values for themselves. Rava says, Rabiel, as my father would point out, there's no age in halacha where a person loses the name of being a yasim. A person could be a hundred years old, they lose their father, they're called a yasim. There's kaddish yasim, there's yasim. So, the, your father's neshot, uh, you know, your father's uh, yard sites today, so the, the family should have a nechama. All right, so let's, uh, let's start this story again. Ahu yasim, the yasim, there was a yasim and a yasim that came in front of Rav. Amar luhu Rav, Rav said, Halu v'yasim b'shul yasim, give money to the yasim, to the boy, so that he can use it to support the girl. Amar luhu Rav, the Rav, the Rav said to Rav, one second, Marhu da Amar, you're the one who says, Mimakarkai v'loi, mimitaltiloi, that you only use karka, you only use real property, and not for movable objects. To support the daughters. No matter what you're using it for. So why are you saying that we should use the money of the Yasom for the Yasoma? Why are we demanding that? And why are we, uh, why are we pushing that? You're, you, you're, you are the one who says that, that we don't do such a thing. Rabbi says back, If this orphan would need, we'll call it cleaning help. If he needs somebody to run his home, wouldn't we give him the extra money so that he can have this help at home? Well, let me tell you something, says Rava. How much more so over here, where you have Tarte, you have two reasons uh, to support the daughter. Meaning, Rava's saying, listen, they're going to be living in a house. It's very hard to live alone. This guy's got a sister. This is going to be helping out around the house. So, Granted, she's a daughter, but the same way when somebody lives in a house with somebody else, they're helping out, and that's called an expense. So too, why should the sister who helps out around the house, Davka, not get money? If you would give him money for a cleaning uh, for cleaning help, you should give money to allow you know so that the the, the daughter, his sister, can live with him in a uh, in a respectable. Fashion. Now, this is such an important. This story, Mamish, you see, Dastair, you see how so many times in Psak, in ruling, you can't just view something in a snapshot. There's, a, there, there's, when there's a real 
understanding, a broad knowledge of an entire situation, there's a lot more that goes into the ruling. Over here you'd say, listen, it's, it says you don't need to give money to the, to the sisters. There's no obligation to support. Says Rava, okay, that's as far as that's concerned. But realize that the sister brings value to the table here as well. As far as that value, of course you're going to, of course you're going to uh, support it. Okay, beautiful. Tanu Rabbanon, the rabbis learned so should we. Whether you have property which has a lien on it, this is referring to real estate. Whether you have property that doesn't have a lien, referring to movable property. Whether it's real property or not, we use that money to support the wife of the deceased as well as the daughters. Now this is not like we were learning on yesterday's daf. Yesterday's daf we learned that you take from real property, not metalton. Rebbe says, you take from both. says, When you have real estate, when you have real property, then we take the value that the boys inherit and we use it to support the daughters. And we also take property from the daughters to help out other daughters. Now what does this mean over here? So Rashi says, that if let's say you have a person leaves behind multiple daughters, even if one is three years old and one is 35 years old, the halacha is it's going to get split up evenly amongst the girls of all ages. And the same thing holds true for sons among sons, meaning no matter what the age gap is, no matter what the age difference is, if you have a kid who's six months old, a child that's six months old, and you have an older son that is 35 years old. So a fellow passed away with a 35-year-old son and a six-month-old son. We don't say the 35-year-old son gets most, of the, uh, gets most of the inheritance just because he's an adult. No, he gets split up evenly. Okay, what's a six-month-old going to do? It? Okay, we'll have, a, we'll have an apitrapus. We'll have a trustee oversee it on his behalf. However, if there's only a little bit of property over here, so then... Um, the sons are going to inherit. However, all of that money is going to be used to support their sisters or the father, their father's daughters, if it's their half-sister. Right? So if the, let's say there's $50 left behind, the sons cannot say, oh, um, $50? Well, you know, sorry, you know, that's not enough that we can have and support you. So they say to the sisters, you go around, uh, go, go around begging. No, you say, if I care, just the opposite. The boys inherit that $50, but since it's so little, you have to use that little bit to support the girls. However, when it comes to metatalin, when it comes to movable property, things that do not have a lien on it, so we're going to Maitzian, we're it literally means we remove it. We're gonna just in context we're gonna explain it to mean split it equally. Okay? So Maitsian Labanim and Abanim, we split it equally amongst the sons, and we split it equally amongst the daughters, and the daughters can use it from what the sons inherit. They could be supported. We don't take away metaltalin from the sons in order to support the daughters, okay? Meaning, when do we say, when there's a limited amount of property that the sons inherit, they must use it to support their sisters, that's by real property. 
metaltalin, movable property, we do not say to the sons, you are obligated to use that $100 cash to support your sisters. Fine. Now, says the Gemara to explain. Even though we know usually, whenever you have a dispute with the Rebbe and his chaver and and uh, you know and, and his friends, the halacha is you paskin like Rebbe. Now Rebbe was the original halacha. Rebbe's original halacha was whether it's real property or movable property, we take it to support the daughters. Even though usually we'll paskin like Rebbe. Over here, hacha. Over here, halacha. Shimon Halacha here follows Reb Shimon ben Alazar, who says we support the daughters with real property. We do we do not support the daughters with metaltal and with movable property. Now, why is this, why is it different over here? Why over here are we not paskening like Rabbi? Diyama Rabba Rabba says hilchasa mi mikarkoi veloi mi metaltaloi. The halacha is that. The obligation to support the children um, based upon the ksuba go, comes from karka, not from atalkam, bein l'ksuvasa, bein l'mzani, bein l'par nasa. Okay, so we paskin, bottom line, amongst the Amirayim, that we make the demands only on from real property, we do not make the demands from metaltal, and hence we see the halacha is not following Rebbe. Okay, <clears throat> in this situation we're following Roshib ben Lazar. Period. End of that Gemara. All right, here we go. Let's get back into the halachos, the responsibilities of a ksuba. Says the Mishnah, right smack dab in the middle of Nun Aleph Amar Aleph. Says the Mishnah, Loi kosav la ksuba. If let's say a husband does not write a ksuba to his wife. All right, so Besula gave a He didn't write a ksuba. Does that mean he doesn't have to give his wife anything? No. You still have the ksuba obligation. So if you married a basula, if you married a virgin, you got to pay her the virgin ksuba. You still have that financial responsibility, whether or not you wrote the document. Va'almana, and if it's a widow, okay, meaning a non-basula, mana, because this is all established as a condition of bezdin in order to be married. So whether or not you produce a ksuba, if you marry this woman, you have that, Bezdin gives you that automatic financial obligation. Let's say he's obligated, he marries a basula. He's obligated in 200 zuz. So he writes over a field worth half of that in place of the 200. And he doesn't add in that all my other property is going to fill out the rest of your ksuba, chayav. You still have to pay out the rest of the ksuba. Why? Shahu tanai bezdin. Again, this is a tanai, this is a condition of bezdin. So in this case, it's actually interesting because it's not that there was no ksuba at all. He wrote a ksuba, he just didn't write in the ksuba the full amount that he's obligated. So what's happening here is, he's going to have to pay whatever he wrote in the ksuba, and the remainder that Bezdin says, the remainder of the amount, that the, the other 50%, that Bezdin says you need to do, we're going to collect from your real property. Okay. Now, like Kosovla, he writes a ksuba, but he does not write in the ksuba the following. He didn't write, Im tishtaboy, if you were to ever be captured, Afrakinach, I will redeem you, V'osvinach li le'intu. And you will 
Osvinach means come back. And you will come back to me as a wife. Okay? Now, what's happening here is as follows. As we learned, unless he's a Kohen, if a woman's taken in captivity, there's an assumption that the woman, you know, we, we had Gemara's earlier about this, you know, what the conditions around this are, but there's an assumption a woman who's taken captivity by non-Jews is going to be violated against her will. Okay? Now, when a woman has relations, a married woman has relations with somebody else against her will, she remains permitted to her husband, and she, the husband's obligated to take her back. He must take her back. Now, we learned previously, there's conditions around that. It depends why she was captured, what the goal was. Sometimes she is considered to, um, to have, you know, depending on the pressure, will, will have to go into this willingly. But let's say the case is where she would remain permitted to a husband. So if let's say the husband does not write to her, if you're captured, I promise to redeem you and take you back as a wife. By a regular woman. Ubekaihenas. Let's say the husband's a Kayan where she's going to become forbidden to him anyway, whether or not it was willingly. I will make sure you get back to your family. He didn't write that in the Ksuba. Now these are Ksuba obligations. The Rabbanans say when a man marries a woman, he accepts these responsibilities to take care of her. So he writes a Ksuba, but he leaves this out. Says the Mishnah, Chayav, it don't matter whether or not you wrote it. If your wife's taken in captivity, you'd be like, oh, I never wrote in the Ksuba. Says the Mishnah, we don't care. You still have that responsibility. Shehu Tanai Bezdem. If you, once a, a Torah Jew, once a Jew decides to marry a woman, there are certain strings that are automatically attached. Whether or not you wrote it in, whether or not you, you know, whether or not you, 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 you can't change. You, you, you can't change what the Chachamim say is a husband's obligation. This is something which is automatic. Let's say she's taken into captivity. He's obligated to redeem her. If he says, here, I'm not going to redeem you. I'll tell you what. Here's your get. Here's your divorce. Here's your 200 zuz or your 100 zuz for a ksuba and pay yourself off. He's also not allowed. You hear this? A husband says, I don't, want to, I don't want to redeem my wife. I don't want to ransom my wife. It's too much money. So we say to him, what do you mean? Tonight, Bezdin, every husband has to do this. You know what the husband says? Fine, I'll give her a get. I'll give her a ksuba. I'm not her husband anymore. Let her redeem herself. I'm not her husband. I'm going to give her a get right now. Says the Mishnah, Rashai. You're not allowed to do that. We don't allow it. You know why? She was captured as your wife. She is ransomed as your wife. Luxa chayvler afusa. Also, if you have a wife who's who's uh, luxa, she's she's ill. She's stricken. That's literally what it means. She's stricken. Chayvler afusa. A husband's obligated to make sure that she receives the proper refuah, the proper healing, and take care of her medical expenses. However, however, and this is fascinating, if a, unlike, unlike a wife taken in captivity, if a wife, if a husband says, it's too much for me to take care of my ill wife, I'll tell you what, I, I, I'm going to divorce her 
and pay her her ksuba, and she could use that ksuba money to, re, to cover her own medical expenses. Under this situation, Rashoi, he is allowed to do that. Now this obviously needs Gemara's explanation. What's the difference between a wife taken into captivity, where we do not allow this outlet for the husband, or a wife who is ill, where we do allow this outlet? So we'll get, we'll get into it. A lot of this has to do with the rights that the Torah gives to a husband financially as far as her earnings and her findings, what were the, what, you know, uh, for, what, what were the reason that he receives her Mycenaeum? Is it in place of paying for her medical bills or is it for redeeming her from captivity? Fascinating. Let's get into this, says the Gemara. Money, first of all, who is the author of our Mishnah? Says the Gemara, Rameir, he the author of Mishnah's Rameir, if a person writes a ksuba to his virgin wife and he writes less, then 200 zuz, you should know it is called be'ilas zenos. Remeir says, a husband is obligated to give that full amount to his wife. Otherwise, if you want to say you're not, then guess what? Every time you have relations, you're just being mizana. You're not married. Now, you, you are married. Okay, we're saying that, but... What, the way Rav Meir is placing this is he says, if you're saying you don't give it to 200 zuz, so that's not part of marriage. When you're marrying Kedash Maisha Yisrael, according to the laws of Maisha and Yisrael, you're obligating yourself 200 zuz, whether or not you wrote a ksuba. That's Rav Meir's opinion. Says the Mishnah why. Says the Gemara why. The Rav Yehuda, if you're going to tell me the author of Mishnah, is the opinion of Rav Yehuda. Now what's Rav Yehuda? Ha'ama, Rav Yehuda says, Ready for this? A guy says to a virgin, to a basula, I want to give you a ksuba of a hundred instead of two hundred. Says Reb Yehuda, if she writes a note stating that she's going to forgive part of the two hundred, and she does, she's not demanding 200, she can do that. If a person wants to make a condition with his wife and say, listen, I know the Chum say 200. However, I want to give you 100. And she writes a document to him. Okay, I'm fine with that. And also half, says Rabbi Yehuda, there's no problem. So you see, according to our mission, which says, no, there must be 200 Zuz, because that's the word of the Chum. It's got to be the pin of Rav Meir. Says Gemara, fine. You're telling me the ratio, which says that you that uh, the 200 zuz is a Tanai Bezdin. That's Rav Meir's opinion. Fine. Ema Seifa, but let's say the end of the Mishnah. What do we learn? If a person gives to his wife, who's a Basula, he writes a field worth 100 zuz over to her. You have the field on the corner of these two streets. And that only has a half of the value of a ksuba. You still need to pay it up. That's following the pinner of Yehuda. Who says that when a person takes a chrayis, a person takes responsibility. You know what that is? We consider that to be a toy cipher. It just, it's a mistake in the writing. And you can't rely on the document. 
You can't rely on those wording. You know what we say? Nah, it's not literal. It's a toy cipher. It's a mistake. And we're not going to say that the woman or any person who's owed the money really, agree, really, uh, re- really uh, fully agreed to that. Now, says the Gemara, Ason That's found the opinion of Yudu, says that Achrais is a toy cipher. Dear Rabbi Mayer, because if you're going to tell me that it's following the opinion of Rabbi Mayer, Ha'amar, Achrais, Lav, toy cipher, who? He says Achrais is not considered toy cipher. It's not considered a mistake. Now, how do you know this? We learned in a Mishnah, if a person finds a document where somebody will say, Shimon owes money to Reuven, im top of if in this document there's a lien on real property, so you're not allowed to return the document. You hear this? You find the document on the street. You find the document on the street. In the document, Shimon owes $1,000 to Reuven. If in that document it says that if Shimon doesn't pay back Reuven, Reuven can collect real property, you're not allowed to return the document. Now let me explain something. If you find a document that Shimon owes money to Reuven, who lost it? Who should you return it to? Shimon or to Reuven? And there's a big difference here, right? I'll tell you why. If you return it to Ruvain, he now has a document stating that Shimon still owes him money. If you return it to Shimon, maybe Shimon paid him back already and took the document back when he paid back the $1,000. And now he took it away from Ruvain, so Ruvain can't collect it again. So you find something, you don't know who to return it to. It's an interesting situation, okay? So it says, if there is a lien on real property in the document... You don't return it. Why? Because Ruvain, who lent them, says, who we're going to say lent the money, um, is just going to go ahead and take payment back from Shimon's real property. And perhaps he's not really owed the money. Fine. Says the Gemara Viter, Ain Baham Achrayas Nechasim. But let's say. It doesn't put a lien on any sort of real property. Let's say there's no lien on real property. So then, Yaxir, you can return it. Because a court is not going to be Nefraim Mayhem. Okay? He's not going to collect until you know, we know for sure what's going on over here. Either way, you should not give it back to Ruvain. Shabbesdin Ephraim Mehem. Bezdin will be Nephraim Mehem. Reisha Reb Meir Vesefer Reb Yehuda. So you're going to tell me the ratio of the Mishnah is Reb Meir and the Sefer Reb Yehuda. In general, we don't like to do that. The Chitim, they're going to say, Kula Reb Meir, he that really the entire Mishnah is Reb Meir Vishayni Leila Reb Meir Ben Ksuba Lishtare. And Reb Meir is going to make a difference between the case of Ksuba and our Mishnah and the case of the Shtar in the, when you find the document. Umi shiny lay. Is it really true that Reb Meir will make a difference between our case of Ksuba and the case of the found document? If you're going to tell me that it's just different halachas, is that really true? Does Reb Meir make a discrepancy between the case of Ksuba and the case of Shtar? Vatanya, but we learned in our brisa, Chamisha Gaivin Min Hamechurarim. There are five situations where you could collect from Mechurarim. Okay. What does it mean, Mechurarim? So, this is if Shimon borrows money from Ruvain and he 
allows his real property to be a lien to Reuven. The halacha is, so the, the circumstance surrounding these properties is where they write in the document, you can collect from my real property, but only property that I still have the deed on. Not property that I've sold to somebody else. Okay? So let's explain. Let's explain. Shimon's a borrower. Shimon owns four fields. He owes $1,000 to Ruvain that he borrowed in January. He owes $1,000 to Yankel that he borrowed in February. $1,000 to Levy that he borrowed in March. Now, Ruvain, now he, he still has land. He, has, he still has four fields. He sold some of the fields. He's holding on to some of the fields. When Ruvain wants to come and collect for the money that Shimon owes him, which land is he allowed to collect from? Is he allowed to go to anyone who bought land since January from Shimon? Or can he only collect from land that Shimon still holds the deed to, that he hasn't yet sold? You understand the question? I have a lien on your real property. The question is, do I go to the property that you haven't sold yet and still yours? Or can I even go to property that you sold after I had a lien on it? Because I should get first dibs on that. So the Brisa says there are five situations where if you're coming to collect from real property, you have to first go to property that the borrower hasn't sold yet, still has the ownership of, even if he owed it to you before selling the other land. And these are the five situations. Peiris ushvach peiris. Both peiris, fruits, and shvach peiris, the going up and value of the fruits. Okay, so we're talking again over here about like um, improvements to the field. All right. Since improvements and things, payros, fruits, you don't know exactly how much value it's going to go up. You don't know exactly how much fruits are going to, be, are going to produce. So anybody who's going to buy the field is not going to know exactly how much risk he has of losing to a different creditor. So Chazal say that you can only take these, these um, payrace and shvach payrace from property that Shimon still has. Okay, not from something else that was sold. Because again, the buyer doesn't really know how much risk he has over here. So that's case number one. Here we go. Case number two. A person who accepts responsibility to feed as Ben Ishtoi or Bas Ishtoi his stepchildren. So you marry a woman and you say to the woman, not only am I going to take care of you, that's certainly the Torah obligation. I'm also going to accept to take care of your family. Okay? So such a thing as well, such a responsibility, we'll say is considered a unfixed amount. You don't know exactly how long it's going to go on for. And hence, it can only be taken 
that responsibility can only be taken from land that is mechurarim, that is not yet sold. Okay, now this might change, Rashi here explains, this might change if, let's say, there's a specific amount promised. But over here, we're referring to there's not necessarily a specific amount. It's just, you know, I'll take care of you. I'll take care of, uh, you tell the wife, I'll take care of you and your children. All right. Says the Gemara, also, uksuvas isha she'in ba'achrayis, and also the ksuva of an isha that does not have achrayis, that does not have any sort of guarantee on it. Says the Gemara, man shamas le'idam achrayis, lav to'isoy for who? Who do we just explain is of the opinion that achrayis, when you have a guarantee, it's not considered a to'isoy for, we don't consider it to be a mistake in the document, and it's not, we don't consider it to be automatically there. Rev Meir, that's the opinion of Rev Meir, Vikatani Ksuvas Isha, Isha, and we're still, we're still including Ksuvas Isha. And we're going to say in the Ksuba, we don't consider it to be a toy cipher. So, bottom line is, says the Gemara, we have a problem. Because according to our original explanation, the ratio was Rev Meir, the Sefer is Rev Yehuda. And if you're going to tell me the whole thing's Rev Meir, it's not possible because in the Sefer we write Ksuvas Isha. And we don't consider it to be an oversight of the sofa or of the scribe, but Rav Meir holds it would be considered an oversight, so he cannot be the sefa. So we're stuck. The ratio is Rav Meir, the sefa is Rav Yehuda, and we don't like that. We don't like the Mishnah changing on us unless it's letting us know that there's a, that there's a shift. So the Gemara says, Ibai is Rav Meir, Ibai is Rav Yehuda. No, you can you don't need to say the ratio is Rav Meir, the is Rav Yehuda. You can even say the whole Mishnah is Rav Meir. Or you can say the entire Mishnah is Rabbi Yehuda. How so? Says the Gemara to explain. Anybody say Rabbi Yehuda? You can say the entire Mishnah follows the bin of Rabbi Yehuda. Hasam kasvelas kabalti because in our Mish in the Mishnah where a husband writes to his wife, you know, um, two hundred zuz. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, a husband writes to his wife. You know, I would give you two hundred zuz. I know I owe you two hundred zuz, but I want to give you one hundred. So I want you to kind of like be Michael. Give me a receipt on a hundred of it. So over there, she wrote a, she, she wrote a receipt. She wrote a document stating, I'm a basula who's going to take 100. Gizint the height. People could be Michael, money that's owed to them. So what? Over here, like Kosovo, Skabalti. But in our Mishnah, we're dealing with, she never wrote a document of Skabalti. What was the beginning of our Mishnah? Our Mishnah says, a guy marries a woman. He's got to pay her the full 200. Did he give her a ksuba? No ksuba. So you know what you got to do? Pay her the full 200. In the other case, she explicitly wrote, I'm Michael 100. If she doesn't explicitly write, I'm Michael 100. So you got to pay the full 200. Finished. Pretty clear. You can explain the uh, pretty clear difference. You buy same of mayor. Or you can even say the entire mission of mayor. Why? What about the Seifa? What about the end? Says the, says the the Gemara, man chay of diktani. What do we mean that he's obligated? Okay, when he you know he's he's uh, he's obligated to pay the full two hundred. It means minamechurarim. Obligation doesn't necessarily mean like a full lien. Maybe it only means on uh, property that Shimon still has in his ksuba obligation. But it doesn't necessarily mean even on sold property. Now the assumption originally was it was only on it was on any it was. Rav Meir would have held on any property, and the Gemara here is explaining. No, maybe it fits very well with the Seifa, where you could, you could. When we say Chayav in our Mishnah, it means you're Chayav to collect, but you still cannot collect from land that was sold. You can only collect from land which was not sold. Okay, 
Period. Two dots. End of that clarification. What's the reason for that? What's the, why, do we, why, why do we come to that conclusion? So, Rabiel is asking, like, why we needed to come to that conclusion. The reason why we need to come to that conclusion is the issue with Rav Meir being the Tana on the whole Mishnah. The issue was, is that Rav Meir held in a brisa that a ksubas isha, the ksuba of a woman that does not have achrayis, that does not have a guarantee, is not considered to be a to'o sofer. It's not considered to be a to'o sofer. Okay, now if it's not considered to be a toy cipher, that means you have a real obligation. If it's if it's a toy cipher, yeah. fine. So what do we? So Gemara is just answering over here. What does it mean a real obligation? It means a real obligation, but still, Reb Meir will agree. If you have a, a even by ksuba, if you have a choice of the woman going and collecting from the husband's estate, the husband's real property. And there's property that's been sold. And property that's not sold. Rav Meir could still hold that she should take from the unsold property. And not necessarily that she can get any property that she wants. No, so that's what I'm asking. Why is... Why do we, why do we differentiate like that? Because otherwise, it's going to... Rav Meir cannot be the Tana of the Seifa. Otherwise, in order... For this to work out, in order for us to be happy and have one consistent author, one consistent Tana of the whole Mishnah and say that Rav Meir works out with our Seifa, you have to say that Rav Meir will agree the Ksuba is only collected from um, unsold they, property. property. Right. Yeah, okay, so why? We had, we had to say that because otherwise it's going to be a stira to the Seifa. It's going to be a stira to the end of the Mishnah. To the Seifa. So in the Seifa, if you look back at our Mishnah, well, let's let's turn back to Amad Aleph and read this through to get clarity. If he didn't write uh, in the Ksuba that I'm going to redeem you if you ever captured. So what's the halacha? You still need to redeem her. Here we go. Amar Abu the father Shmuel said, Eishas Yisrael Shenesra, if you have an Eishas Yisrael, the wife of a regular Jew, who somebody violated her, Asur Labalo, she's Asur to her husband, because we're concerned that once she got into, once this guy violated her, she ultimately ended up having some sort of pleasure with it, some sort of enjoyment. And therefore, Avud Deshmul says, let's make a decree, even though in general, a woman who's violated by somebody who's forbidden could go back to her husband. But we, ha- we do have this concern. We do have this concern that maybe at some point within the relations, there was something willing about her, so she should not go back to her husband. Esfei Rav Avud Deshmul. Rav says to Shmuel's father, one second, if, if, um, if a husband what, writes, Im tishtaboi, if you, if you are captured, Efrakinach, I will redeem you, v'osvinach li'lainti, and I'll take you back as a wife. Now, according to you, Shmuel's father, a husband can never say, I'll take my wife back, because she's going to be forbidden to him in halacha, in case any part of it was done willingly. So ishtik, he was quiet. Kari ravalei davud Shmuel, sarim asem emilim v'kach yasimu b'fnim, that... You know, Sarim uh, officers utru stop milim their words, the kaf and they and their palm yasimu lepiem they place over their mouth. Okay, 
Now, meaning, I had a good challenge on Shmuel's father. He didn't have a good response. Says the Gemara, Mayislay Lamemar. What? Well, you know, uh, what is there to say about this? So Gemara says you could say Bishwiya Hikilu. That maybe in general, when a woman's violated, we say at some point maybe she had some sort of pleasure with it and was in there willingly, so she cannot go back to her husband. But when a woman's taken into captivity, we're going to be makel, we're going to be lenient. You know why? Because remember, do we know for sure every captive woman was violated? No, that itself is just an assumption. So when a woman comes out of captivity, we don't know that there was a violation in the first place. So we'll say like this, do we know she was violated? Not for sure. Probably, but not for sure. And in the chance that she was violated, do we know for sure that there was any part of it that was done willingly? No. So over there, we're going to be a makel. We're going to be lenient. But a regular woman who's violated without being taken into captivity, and we know there was a violation, there will be strict. If you don't know for sure there's a violation, you can be lenient. According to Shmuel's father, who says we're always concerned that if a woman's violated, she may have some sort of willingness and pleasure so she cannot go back to her husband. So where are you ever going to find the case where the terror does allow a woman to go back to her husband? If there are witnesses who say, listen, we saw her being violated and she was uh, kicking and screaming the whole time. We, knew, we saw throughout the whole time that she wasn't uh, interested. And this argues on says, Anytime you have a situation where it starts out against the person's will and it ends off being even if she says it's okay he uh, uh, leave him because uh, you know after the fact I'm fine with what he did Mutares, you hear this a guy violates a woman and she says leave him alone leave him alone I like him now Still, she's mother to her husband. My taima, yetzer al bashta, yetzer al bashta. You know what it means? His, he, he's kind of playing with her brain. He's playing. He's dressing her in yetzer, in inclination. He's playing with her mind, but she doesn't really want it. Okay, so now this obviously is a big argument on Shmuel's father. Because Shmuel's father says, "Oh, you're always concerned." That if, even if against her will, maybe at some point there's something willing. Says Rava, doesn't, wouldn't even matter. You should know. Says Rava, even if a woman's violated, and in the middle of the relation, she's like, oh, I'm actually, I'm actually fine with this. Totally fine. She's still muttered to her husband. It's not really her. It's some way he's manipulating her brain to make her, but this is not really what she wants. Very, 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 very deep concept, which is connected to a lot of other Gemaras that we find you know, for example, a, a carbon chatas, a sin offering has to be brought willingly. The Gemara t- tells us, uh, based upon Psukim, that you force a person to bring it willingly. <laughs> you, you force him to bring it willingly. It's the Gemara in Kedushan, Dafnun. The Gemara explains, yeah, because a Yid really wants to do the right thing. But there's times where the Yitzhahara grips us. the Rava, we have a Brysa supporting Rava. Vahila in she wasn't grabbed. She wasn't forced. Asura. 
Only when she went into it willingly, she's forbidden. If she's forced, she remains mutter to her husband. Even though she's not forced, mutter, she remains mutter. What's a case where she remains permitted to her husband, even if the, even if it's not forced? It started out against her will, and then you know, in the middle of it, she she was willing to continue on with that particular act of relations. She's mutter to her husband. Arguing on Shmuel's father, Tani Idach. We learned in her Brisa uh, elsewhere. She wasn't forced. Then Asura, she's forbidden to go back to her husband. She went in completely willingly. If let's say she is forced into the relations, Muteras, she's permitted to her husband. And there's another case, Shafa Pisha Nispasa Asura, where even though she's forced, she's forbidden to her husband. When is a woman forced, forbidden to her husband? What's that case? Eshes Kayan. The Kohen's wife, because we know the halacha of a Kohen is uh, that she she gains the status of a zaina when she's when she uh, has relations with somebody who she's forbidden to have relations with, even if she's forced into it, she's not allowed to go back to her husband. asura. She's not forced; she's forbidden to her husband. If she is forced muteres. The Yeshla Acheres is another situation. When she's not forced, Muteres. If let's say a woman gets married, Betais. Okay, what does it mean, Betais? What it means is, um, uh, Rashi explains over here, where she gets married, thinking that she's totally married, but ultimately there was a condition attached to the marriage which was never, which was never fulfilled. And since the, the condition was never fulfilled, what's going to happen is, retroactively, she's never married. So while, if she was having an extramarital affair, if she was never married, it's not called an extramarital affair. So, even though she wasn't forced, she's permitted. It turns out she was never married in the first place. Even if she's walking around with a child, she had a, she had a child with the... With the Thought to be husband at that time, she could now refuse the marriage because it was never the condition was never fulfilled. And walk away, walk away. Um, Rav Yehuda, Rav Yehuda says, Hani Nashi the Ganvi Ganvi Sharyon Leguv Rayu. If you have women who are who are uh, taken captive by bandits, they are permitted to go back to their husbands. Why? Obviously, Rashi helps us out over here, but the logic is going to be, it's assumed it was against their will. Army what, what do you mean over here? When women are taken into captivity um, by these bandits, they, you know, they, they need to get on the bandits' good side. So maybe they went into this willingly. Why are you allowing them to go back to their husbands? It literally means they're going to bring them bread. Machmasira, no, they're bringing them bread, but the entire thing is just done to protect themselves. The women to protect themselves is still called out of fear. So they're permitted to go back to their husbands. I have The women even at times help the bandits fight. They prepare their arms for them. Machmasira, that's also done because they're afraid. Vadai says the Gemara, you should know for sure, Shavkinu Vazlinu Minavshayu Asiran. That if the women eventually go back to, to the bandits, then we know for sure that uh, they're going to be Usr to their husbands. Now, this is referring to when the bandits themselves allowed the women to leave the captivity. Okay? If they allow the, the women to go back to captivity, that means 
that they're now there's now a friendship that was formed and there's an assumed uh, you know there's an assumed relationship. All right, Tanur Rabban the rabbis learned that's why the rabbis. Let's wrap up the daf. Here we go. Shvuye Malchus Harehin Kishvuyim. If people are taken into captivity by the government, so they are considered captives and they're mutter to their husbands. Sometimes kings would take women as additional women to have relations with. Genuve listais in a kishuyim, but if they're taken captives by, by bandits, they're usher to their husbands. Says Gemara, one second, we just learned bandits are permitted. Now you tell me bandits are forbidden, but Tani Ibcha, we just learned the opposite. So Gemara says, Malchus Hamachus like Kasha, Haba Machus Achashverish, Haba Machus Ben Netzer. In the kingdom like Achashverish, where, um, where uh, Achashverish had this thing where he was just living with uh, every girl before she got married. So. Um, she's permitted to go back to her husband because they had no intent of ever, ever remaining with him. But this is done about a kingdom of Ben Netzer. So who's Ben Netzer? So Rashi says that Ben Netzer wasn't really a king. He was, uh, he was a uh, ganav. He was a thief who ran his own little, uh, you know, his own little shebang out in the forest or whatever it was, and he was the mayor of his own little bandit town. So over there, um, we, we say that he would take them as additional wives, so maybe they actually went into it willingly. List them, I'll list this like Asha, and as far as bandits as well, we'll give the same answer. Haba ben Netzer, haba list them to Alma. Okay? Ben Netzer, oh, you're going to live with him, you're going to maybe there was willingly, but a regular bandit, they're not interested in, in at all. And why in one place you're calling Ben Netzer a king, referring to him as a king, in another place referring to him as a bandit? Says Gemara, in, it makes sense. List them who, as far as Achashverosh, who had a real kingdom, Ben Netzer is just considered a, a list them, a bandit. List them, Dalma, but as far as a regular bandit, Melechu, um, he was considered a king. Because he actually had more, he was like a mob boss. You know, he had more of a ruling over, and, uh, and that's why some, the, the, it's, all, it's all relative. And, and this is also beautiful in life, right? And sometimes, you know, depending on who you are, you have different yichas. Some people, you're incredible at it. Other people, you have what to work on over here. So, so compared to Achashverosh, Ben Netzer was not a king, but compared to other bandits, Ben had this elevated status. Okay, we're up to the two dots in the bottom of Nun Aleph Ahmed Bez. We'll hold it here. Have a wonderful, wonderful Shabbos. And a good and Chaydish, everybody. Pez Hashem, we will pick up from here, Matzi Shabbos, 9.15 p.m. Zai Gebenched.